Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by Twid Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing Young People in Recovery with Michael Miller, the organization's communications and chapter director. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to uh, have this conversation. Me too. So I guess first things first, um, what is the organization's mission um, and kind of how, how is it different and how does it stand apart from other recovery organizations, whether those organizations specifically target young people um, or not? Sure. So I, the, the um, <clears throat> proper vision for it is uh, a world where everyone can access the necessary resources to recover from substance use disorder and associated high-risk behaviors. Um, the mission is to provide the training and networks all individuals, families, and communities need to recover and maximize their full potential. Um, I think that what makes YPR pretty unique is um, the model of empowering young people in recovery and their allies to kind of take charge of their futures and um, be able to uh, have a voice for not only the recovery community, but everyone who might ultimately struggle with substance use disorder or um, is affected by substance use disorder. And I think that the biggest piece that got me involved um, from the outset was the idea of the embrace of, of the many pathways to recovery. So we are strong advocates for what we call the many pathways, which basically means we uh, believe that there is no one right way to get better. And um, substance use disorder exists on kind of a spectrum of severity. So there needs to be a spectrum of response. So whether or not somebody's in the traditional pathways, a lot of times people think of the fellowships, like AA, NA, that sort of thing, abstinence-based recovery. Um, but we also embrace uh, harm reduction as a pathway to recovery. We embrace moderation management, um, other secular ways to get to recovery as well. And, and I think that us, us really holding true to um, the recovery definition as defined by SAMHSA being, um, I'm probably going to butcher this because I don't know it by <laughs> heart, but, but in essence, um, recovery is a process in which um, people make healthier decisions and live more self-directed lives. And I think that that's what's um, really unique and fun about YPR is we can bring together so many different people to um, organize and call for change um, in their communities. Absolutely, I think that's that's great, and it's um, it's really fantastic to hear recovery organizations talking about the multiple pathways. Um, you know, it's not it's unfortunately not as common as I think a lot of us would like it to be, uh, and there are, there's a lot of pressure I think from mainstream society to to do recovery one specific way and have it mean 
one specific thing. And, you know, I, we know pretty well that that just doesn't work for everyone. And so it's encouraging to see groups like yours exist. Um, I guess one question I have is what sort of sparked the specific focus on young people? Uh, so back in, I, it, it seems like forever ago, and I wasn't even involved at that point, but it was really only four or five years ago, um, a group of young leaders uh, that were recovery advocates got together and decided to form an organization because um, it was apparent that young people were disproportionately without a voice in the recovery advocacy movement. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the birth of it um, because young people need um, things a little bit differently than than folks even my age or, or older at this point would need. And um, young people have a really um, awesome ability to be able to leverage things like new technology and social media and the passion that young people have for um, life and for change and and the opportunity to kind of harness that enthusiasm and that passion um, I think kind of just propelled the organization and a lot of recovery advocates kind of across the board um, to have seats at the table where policymaking discussions are, are had and um, where communities are talking about substance use and are talking about recovery. And I, that, that was really the origin was, was young people needing a voice. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And uh, as most of our listeners know, um, our whole team on This Week in Drugs is made up of alumni of students for sensible drug policy. And so I think we are very strongly aligned in our beliefs about the power of young people. I love it. I love it. Um, so I guess talking more specific uh, current events, you know, you're based in Denver and there has been some significant progress in Denver's push towards um, supervised injection site. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, So uh, we have an organization here locally called the Harm Reduction Action Center, and a woman by the name of Lisa Rayville is their executive director, and she's kind of been uh, uh, waving the harm reduction freak flag, as she (laughs) likes to say it, for a long, long time. Just, yeah, most of our listeners, um, long-time listeners, should remember when she came on the podcast in, I believe, season one. And then we also had Kat Humphreys um, on just last season, I think. So so hopefully our listeners are familiar with how incredible that organization is. Yeah, they've done really great things um, in the local community from actually getting brick and mortar, a brick and mortar location for syringe access um, to uh, being really instrumental in Narcan legislation and Good Samaritan legislation so that um, people can have access to it. So there's a, there's that standing order from giving people the opportunity to go to, into most any pharmacy in Colorado and, and be able to get Narcan without a prescription, which is really, really important for the population that uses opiates specifically. Um, but Lisa and Kat and everybody at, at Harm Reduction Action Center was really influential in getting this uh, safe injection facility legislation kind of going. Um, we have a, I believe she's a senator, and I, her name escapes me at the moment, but she started this um, committee uh, for opioids specifically within the state legislature, and they made, I think there are now six different bills 
um, that their committee has produced that they are bringing to the next legislative session. And one of those is um, piloting safe injection facilities. And I, we're really, really excited about that here. And there's actually a lot more community support than um, I kind of assumed on the front end. But I think Colorado, we're really lucky in having a little bit of a um, a progressive population enough to be able to understand um, issues of public health pretty well compared to other places I hear about. So I'm really grateful that um, Colorado has the opportunity to kind of help lead that charge in the country uh, amongst some other um, local governments and, and state governments that are looking really heavily at, at supervised injection too. But it's really exciting. I'm, I'm stoked for it. Yeah, absolutely. And really quickly, um, I looked up the committee chairwoman and it looks like state rep Brittany Pedersen. There you go. Perfect. Um, but yeah, I think that's really exciting. And I, one thing that um, also really stuck out to me was that it's there's really a lot of bipartisan support, I guess, and that um, that is, I guess, makes me hopeful um, to see that more conservative bombing. Well, and I guess Colorado is kind of an interesting story because even a lot of the more right-leaning conservative folks are have a little bit of a libertarian streak um but it's still exciting to see to see people on both sides of the aisle really starting to view this as a public health issue um and really taking and not just not just saying that it's a public health issue but actually taking steps to to treat it as such I agree. I think it's really encouraging to see um, bipartisan support. I know there's a couple different um, small things that are happening, specifically within the bill um, that that um, makes an exception for a uh, public nuisance. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Basically, the first step to get the safe injection facility legislation passed was to um, create an exception for a public nuisance so that the city or whatever municipality a safe injection facility was in could not um, take over a property as being a public nuisance since drugs are being consumed in that space. So that was really the first step. And and there was um, a Republican lawmaker from El Paso County that actually uh, added an additional piece to that legislation about increasing um, penalties and sentencing guidelines for um, opioid analogs, so like synthetic opiates that you might get mm -hmm. from, we're hearing a lot about opiates coming in from China, that sort of thing, so fentanyl, carfentanyl, all of those analogs. Sure. Um, so that was a bit of a concern for a couple of us, including the Colorado Criminal Justice Coalition. Um, and so we're keeping an eye on that, but, but broadly... It, we're heading in the right direction. There's still some of that um, supply reduction rhetoric that we're seeing, kind of in legislation and in uh, in in talks with legislators. But for the most part, I think we are definitely heading in the right direction. But we're still going to have those holdouts for, um, I guess, relics of the drug war, if you will. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, there's an article in the Denver Post that we'll make sure to link to. Um, in our blog post that talks about how there's a decent amount of support from city council and, um, uh, but 
I guess Mayor Hancock is still um, not particularly enthused by the idea. We'll work on him. We're working on him. Absolutely. Um, so I guess moving to a little bit broader um, conversation, it was just not too long ago um, that the White House Opioid Commission released some their final recommendations. Um, and it's, we haven't talked too much in depth about that on the podcast. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to touch on some of the pieces that really stuck out to you the most um, and maybe those that might have the biggest impact on young people. Yeah, so uh, I think that that commission's recommendations were really, really important. And I think that the um, creation of the commission in the first place was uh, pretty groundbreaking and a really great step in the right direction. Um, obviously, there are some pieces that drug policy advocates are not the most stoked about. Really, I, I'm not all that happy about um, any expansion of interdiction um, in any way, shape, or form. But I mean, specifically, um, the the uh, recovery support language within those recommendations for increasing access to um, evidence-based recovery support is really, really important. Um, and then the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration um, reviewing its scope of practice for naloxone specifically and talking about disseminating best practices for states um, that may need statutory or regulatory changes to allow EMTs to administer naloxone, um, including higher doses specifically to account for like, the rising number of fentanyl and carfentanyl overdoses too. I think that that was um, a really big deal and not something we heard a lot about, um, but it's, it's a really huge component of, of, a, of a comprehensive strategy to attempt to um, save lives, which is, which is what it comes down to at the end of the day. And then I think that um, recommendations for the expansion uh, and oversight of problem-solving courts, so things like drug courts, is a really big step in the right direction in terms of reforming our criminal justice system away from um, that war on drugs um, standpoint and trying to move a little bit away from mass incarceration. I think of that more like a bridge to where we need to be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that drug courts are the destination because um, we see what we see what prohibition has done so far. Um, but I think it's a really great step in the right direction in terms of um, adjusting our criminal justice system finally, though it should have happened decades <laughs> ago, um, to start treating this as a public health issue as opposed to a criminal justice issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think I like uh, your comment about it being a bridge and just sort of, uh, I guess the first thing that came to mind is it's, you know, we can almost look at drug courts as as reducing the arms of the current system. So in exactly. a way, it's, it's harm reduction. <laughs> um, but one thing I wanted to talk about, and it's, it's been a conversation um, among students for sensible drug policy and sort of within the broader drug policy movement is the media campaign uh, that the commission has recommended and really I've seen some people calling it just say no 2.0. <laughs> sure. um, and then, you know, you work with young people. Um, and so I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I know the, the general consensus is that these just say no uh, campaigns are, 
are not effective um, because young people are more intelligent than they tend to get credit for. Um, and, you know, so, so once they realize that maybe marijuana or some of these other drugs aren't quite as, as scary as they were made out to be in health class, uh, they start questioning other things too. Um, and so I'm curious what, if, if you think it will be effective this time around, um, and if not, sort of what you, what you think might be effective in actually getting through to young people. Sure. I mean, so um, I think that that the the generation currently plagued by opioid use disorders and overdoses is the generation of just say no and dare. Um, mm. I think that we know empirically that just say no did not work. Um, and I think that it's it's almost as if it were a, a um, <clears throat> an excuse to not have to do any harder work is the way that it comes <laughs> off to me. If if somebody told me to just say no to um, like I, I I don't actually remember anybody ever telling me that. I, <laughs> I, I know I had seen it before. Right. But I had like police officers in my classroom when I was in elementary school talking about basically how if I smoked a joint of marijuana, I would end up. Um, with with a heroin addiction, be homeless and be committing crazy robberies by the end of the week, and it's just it's it's inaccurate, right? And it's mm-hmm. um, it's I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that people don't give kids enough credit to uh, be intelligent enough to make smart choices based on having all the information, right? So we need accurate, honest information conveyed at the um, at that early education level to be able to tell kids what choices look like, um, what consequences, actual consequences, scientific consequences of use look like, um, and that sort of thing. So I, w- I'm, I think that it's a waste of resources. Um, this public media or public relations campaign that um, they t- they talked about. I think that. Uh, a much better use of resources and time would be the implementation of uh, programming like SPERT, which is um, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. So what that means is they take um, any student that has identified to be uh, low, moderate, or severe risk for substance use disorder, and um, there's an intervention, an evidence-based intervention, whether that's um, pairing some up, someone up with a mentor with lived experience or referring them to treatment if necessary. Um, and then not only does, does that framework and that effective prevention framework um, intervene when kids need it in an evidence-based fashion, but it also um, shows our young people that there are options for getting better. So, of course, like the, the preference would be that... Um, kids don't start doing drugs until they're able to uh, understand the consequences, the health risks, and what it does to their bodies, right? Which we, we, with alcohol, we call it 21 years old, right? But we know that young people are going to use drugs no matter what society we live in, no matter how many effective prevention uh, programs we have in place, no matter how many commercials of Nancy Reagan are saying, uh, just say no with a bunch of kids, you know, so kids are going to use drugs. We need to have, um, an infrastructure to be able to support those kids 
hands intervene when necessary and then point them in the right direction and their families in the right direction for um, evidence-based treatment interventions. And I'm, I, I'm, I emphasize evidence-based treatment interventions because a lot of times um, people don't understand that there are treatment interventions that um, sound really good and look really good, but there's no evidence or data to back up their, their efficacy. So I think it's really important that we focus on evidence-based interventions, period. And we know empirically that just say no is not evidence-based. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your mention of evidence-based interventions um, kind of serves as a segue into my next question, because like you mentioned, um, Yes, you know, this is kind of a, a bridge to where we need to be. And along those same lines, there are a lot of things that aren't recommended in this report. Um, and, you know, some of the specific ones jumping out at me are um, supervised injection facilities or um, the use of medical marijuana as an alternative to pain medication. Um, I'm wondering if there was anything that specifically jumped out at you. I'd say that the, the lack of expansion of access to harm reduction services, so specifically um, really comprehensive syringe access programming and uh, supervised injection facilities. Like we know we, we, we lose a, at least a plane full of people a day to opioid overdose alone. That doesn't account for any other drug or alcohol-related death. Um, and the, the primary concern at this point should be to keep people alive, and then we figure out how to treat those people. Um, because I think that we're all pretty tired of burying friends at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's we're, we're still stuck in, in kind of a uh, situation within American society where um, we haven't shed that belief about drug use being a, um, a moral failing. <clears throat> and I think that anytime we introduce somewhat radical ideas, although they might not sound radical to those of us that are in the drug policy reform movement, um, they scare a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, they probably did their best with the political capital they had on that commission um, but I think it's going to take a lot more public outcry and organizing from folks like you guys at This Week is in Drugs, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Control Policy, DPA, YPR, everybody, um, to continue educating the public around um, why harm reduction is so important and um, starting sh- to shed the light on some of the um, really cool advancements in uh, the cannabis industry in, in terms of treating chronic pain and, and maybe trying to stem the tide of um, people that are are on pain medication and it's necessary, but looking at alternative treatments. And, and we're starting to see a lot of data come out about how effective cannabis can be for pain management versus um, opioids. And, and that's something that needs to get explored, but there's still that there's still that public perception issue and really prejudice. A lot of people call it stigma, but it's prejudice against um, people who use substances because we're still stuck in that narrative that we were pushed back in the war on drugs and the time of Nixon and Reagan. And I think that it's just going to take some time for us to continue organizing and educating the public around um, 
what solutions exist, why things haven't worked in the past, and ways that we can try to address uh, substance use issues and substance use period in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, but, you know, this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate, you know, your feedback. Um, but unfortunately, we are coming up on time. And so as our listeners know, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty important, but it's also a little bit useless if they're not also using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive change. So if you could have our listeners do something right now, what would you ask them to do? So you can't do it right now, but if you can <laughs> vote, do it. Voting is really, really important. Um, and drug policy issues are really, really important uh, pieces of a platform that candidates need to adopt. Um, and then also getting involved in advocacy somehow, right? Whether that's through Students for Sensible Drug Control Policy, Drug Policy Alliance, um, Facing Addiction, Faces and Voices of Recovery, or Young People in Recovery. Um, you can learn more about Young People in Recovery just at youngpeopleinrecovery.org. Um, and just reach out, ask questions, and get organized in your community so that we can start to, uh, to turn the tide here. Fantastic. Thank you, for, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Uh, this has been Michael Miller from Young People in Recovery. Thank you so much. Thank you. again for listening to season five of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.